The map in the Library of Congress is yellowed and torn. It's been folded, refolded, and exhaustively annotated. But the neat grid of streets, cradled in a fork of the Potomac River, is instantly recognizable. It's the original plan for the new federal city that would become Washington, D.C., and it was designed by a Frenchman. To create a capital worthy of the new republic, Pierre-Charles L'Enfant wanted to combine the scale and grandeur of Versailles with the egalitarian ideals of the revolution. Classically inspired buildings would house the institutions of the new democracy. Grand avenues would be accessible to all. L'Enfant was one of thousands of French who joined the revolution. Many then tried to take its ideals back to revolutionary France. Of course, democracy is a process, not an event. The first French Republic lasted only 12 years, and where America has had one constitution since 1787, France has had 14. But it's learned a thing or two along the way. Today, the Fifth French Republic is wrestling to reconcile very different visions of its future, as the people vote for a new president. Should America now look to France as a model instead? I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is the French presidential system better than the American one? In the first round, most French voters opted for anti-establishment candidates. Now, a liberal and a nationalist are facing off for the presidency of France. Both finalists have redrawn the country's political map, It's a feat only possible due to the country's unique electoral system. And the polls look tighter than ever. Are Emmanuel Macron's struggles a cautionary tale for political centrists elsewhere? How will the result reshape the relationship with America's oldest ally? And do the foibles of the French system offer lessons for America's partisan gridlock? With me to explore the parallels between French politics and American politics, and also to utter the heretical thought that maybe France has a better system for electing presidents, are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloun. Charlotte, how are you doing? It's very nice that you're in London at the moment. Yeah, it's been great to be in London to see everyone. I haven't been here for a few years, so it's great to see people in person. It was a strange week, though, to be away from New York because, of course, there was this horrible attack on the city's subway system. I would note, though, that the person who apprehended the alleged shooter was a Syrian immigrant, and he apprehended someone who was American-born. So it was yet another reminder of the ways in which the immigration debate can be caricatured and that the reality of immigrants' role in America is more complex. That's a good point. And it's also a useful reminder, given that in this episode, we're going to be talking quite a bit about Marine Le Pen, who's come to prominence in French politics, partly on the back of anti-immigrant sentiment and anti-immigrant campaigning. Idris, how are you doing? What's going on in DC at the moment? I'm doing really well. I'm several time zones behind you guys. So I'm mainlining coffee and hoping to keep up. You know, DC, things are going. Biden's having to deal with a really high inflation number and has to figure out what his economic messaging is going to be. Um, and Congress is not doing all too much, but is working towards uh, another aid package for Ukraine. 
So those are the big things going on here. Yeah, there are also echoes there in French politics in the sense that the cost of living and inflation in France are real political problems for the incumbent Emmanuel Macron. Okay, you, our dear listeners, may be wondering why this podcast, which is about American politics, is looking at the French election this week. And I think there are a few answers to that. One is that France matters. You know, it's America's oldest ally, second largest economy in Europe the only European permanent member of the UN Security Council. So the outcome of this election matters. But also, I think there are some interesting lessons and comparisons to be drawn from the way France elects its presidents compared with America. There's also some really interesting parallels on what's been going on on the right in French politics. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to get a bit of a sense of the race as it stands now. And the best person to give us that sense, is our Paris bureau chief, Sophie Pedda, who's been covering France for a long time, wrote a biography of Emmanuel Macron, has covered the rise of his movement. And I began by asking her what struck her most about the results from the first round. I think there were three elements that stand out in the first round result. The first was that actually Emmanuel Macron did really well. He got 28% of the vote. That is four points higher than he did in 2017. And it's actually the highest score for an incumbent president since 1988, when François Mitterrand did better. I think the second point is that what we're seeing in France is an absolute and total collapse of the mainstream left and the mainstream right, the parties that have dominated politics in France under the Fifth Republic. In 2017, they got a combined 26% of the vote, and on Sunday night, they got less than 7 And the answer to that is that Macron's centrist party has just crushed the sort of alternatives, the moderate alternatives. But the flip side of all this is that the extremes, the radicals, the populists on the left and the right have actually risen to about 58%. Let's start with the extremes and the most successful of the extremes, Marine Le Pen. I mean, she's been around for a long time, right? You've covered the process of her trying to rid herself of the you know, racist legacy of her father's party, the Front National. Do you think that's for real? Or or do you see this as a kind of carefully designed persona? You know, I think this transformation that you're referring to, John, is, is absolutely fascinating. She has, over this decade, really sort of positioned herself as someone who she wants the French to see as electable, you know, sensible, calming, unifying, the sort of almost mother of the nation in her campaign brochure. It's extraordinary some of the photographs where she poses with children, with nurses, with uh, with a horse and with her cats. But I think the most important thing is to look at her programme and what she would actually do. And the number one element in it is immigration and nationality policy. For example, she would end the automatic right to citizenship for those born in France. She wants to ban, for example, the veil, the Muslim veil on the French streets. It's not currently banned. It's just the the full face covering that's banned. She wants to give national preference, as she calls it, to French citizens, which would set her on an absolute and automatic collision course with European Union law. So she, I think, would be constantly challenging European law rather than one of the main motors, along with Germany, of the direction of, of European integration. In foreign policy, one of the most striking, you know, alarming things, in addition to her view of the European Union, is her proximity to Vladimir Putin. You know, she's an open admirer of Vladimir Putin. How close is that link? 
Well, I think it is strong. And she once told me that she saw Vladimir Putin as a great man of state. And she has had to backpedal somewhat during the war. She has clearly condemned Russia's war in Ukraine. But she's also said that Putin, and if not Putin, at least Russia, could be an ally again of France under a Le Pen presidency if the war was to come to an end. She has a bank loan outstanding from a Russian bank to finance her campaign. She is in favour of taking France out of NATO's integrated military command. And I think that we should be lucid and very clear-eyed about how different the foreign policy sort of fundamentals would be under a Le Pen presidency, which would include that sort of fundamental sympathy for Russia. Sophie, let's turn to Emmanuel Macron. I mean, there's a chance that Marine Le Pen wins the presidency. I think we should underline that. There's a real chance that she is France's next president. It's more likely, however, that Emmanuel Macron is re-elected. When he was first elected in 2017, he was hailed as a sort of standard bearer for liberals who were, you know, reeling from Brexit, Donald Trump's election, Viktor Orban's success, etc. How successful as a governing sort of philosophy has his political centrism been in practice? Well, I think if you look at the first five years under Emmanuel Macron, there, are, there have clearly been issues and problems. I mean, the, the main one that everyone remembers is the Gilets Jaunes protests, which broke out when he tried to increase the carbon tax on motor fuel. But I think one measure which I think captures what has changed in, in France is that five years ago, one of the top three uh, worries that voters talked about was unemployment. And today, that worry has just dropped out of the conversation. It's, it's about 14th on the list of what people are worried about. And I think the reason for that is very clear. It's that unemployment has come down. It's come down from nine, over 9% to just over 7 and Macron has now made a not implausible promise to, to bring about full employment if he is around for another five years. So I think, you know, the, the, France has become a job-creating economy. Given that economic progress, how do you understand the sort of sources of discontent in France that we've seen in the rise of the extremes? Is it just the case that people find sort of success boring? Um, <laughs> is it something else? I think there is an element of that. One just takes it for granted. You know, and I point out that unemployment has, has fallen. People look sort of somewhat surprised as if they now accept that as, as part of the picture. And other worries have come in their place. You know, the top one at the moment is the cost of living and rising energy bills because of the war in Ukraine. But I think there's another element, and that's to do with Macron's style. You know, we've seen a, a president who is, there he is, always in his suit, always looking immaculate, always looking very Parisian. And this, you know, just sort of grates, I think, for a lot of people who feel that the imperious way he talks to people, that sort of haughty manner he has, is something that they really dislike. And I think, you know, we are looking at a very difficult time for those who have a fairly sort of unexciting, technocratic message. Macron is too rational for a, for a world of sort of emotional politics. Idris, Sophie mentioned there in passing Marine Le Pen's wish to end birthright citizenship in France. That reminded me, as many other things in her programme remind me, of the Trump movement. How much commonality is there, do you think, between the Le Pen movement and the Trump movement? Well, there are quite a lot of similarities between the two of them. You see the fact that both of them began with opposition to immigration 
Both of them are skeptical of international alliances and are a bit more isolationist, a little bit more pro-Putin and pro-Russian than the right-wing consensus in both those countries. So I think that there's that similarity. And I think you also see, in particular, a demographic similarity in their supporters as well. A few political scientists and the economist Thomas Piketty published this really interesting research, which I think about a lot, which noted that in 21 countries, if you charted the political uh, opinions of people by their education level, you saw this emerging educational polarization that's been really stark. And they categorize it as the Brahmin left and the merchant right. And if you look in America, you see that. You see white working class voters have defected to the Republican Party, especially under Trump. And if you look at France, you see the same as well. Less educated voters are flocking to Marine Le Pen. The deindustrialized areas of France are very heavily populated by her supporters, just as they were with with Trump. You know, there are, of course, differences. Uh, for one, the Le Pen family has been running to be president of France since the 1970s. And, you know, Marine Le Pen has personally been running for about 10 years, and she's gone through repeated reinventions to moderate herself and to make herself more appealing, which Trump has never been capable of, at least that I could detect. And the other difference that I think is kind of interesting is that Unlike in America, Le Pen's popularity increases among younger voters, which is an interesting change. I think one other difference that I'd identify is I think Le Pen is more hostile to American-style capitalism than, than Donald Trump is. I mean, classically, populist movements of the left tend to be anti-big business and populist movements of the right tend to be anti-foreigner. I think Le Pen's movement sort of combines those those two. But there are, as you say, so many commonalities, but actually there's even been some sort of intellectual exchange between the French far right and the American far right, the great replacement theory, which crops up from time to time in far right circles in America, I think originated in France. And in some senses is more mainstream in France than it is in America. I mean, you have France's, one of its most famous living novelists, Michel Houellebecq, has been pushing this stuff for, for a long time. That would be a bit like Philip Roth um, embracing the great replacement theory. <laughs> yeah, I was struck by a comment that Marine Le Pen made in 2017, in which she explicitly said the policies I represent are the policies represented by Mr. Trump and they're represented by Mr. Putin. And so you see it's not a vague fondness, right, for autocrats. It's explicit fondness for Vladimir Putin. One of the things I find interesting in Sophie's reporting is the way that French people experience the economy and the degree to which unemployment is really not the only metric that matters, in particular the cost of living. And in America, of course, Biden has been trying to toe this line between touting jobs reports but also acknowledging different problems that people are having. So in April, he was talking about how there have been more jobs created over the first 14 months of his presidency than in any presidency ever, and that it's the fastest decline in unemployment to start a president's term ever. And I think it's hard for both Macron and for Biden to try to tie a line between the unemployment rate and their own presidencies. They want to take some credit for a relatively low unemployment rate, but it's really hard to draw the line for me to be in an era of high inflation. One of the things for Macron is that he didn't announce his presidency until one day before the deadline, and he has been talking a lot about how he's a wartime president. And so he's been trying to sort of claim that mantle and have it be 
um, both an excuse for not doing as much campaigning as he might have done otherwise, but also to make himself look very presidential. What do you both make of the effect of the campaign on transatlantic relations? Well, the adjective that people use to describe Macron is always Jupiterian. And I think that that was on peak display in his attitude towards the campaign. He decided that he was going to be a sort of great statesman of Europe now that Merkel is gone. And so he didn't really deign to campaign all that much. And I think once the war started, people concluded that Le Pen was finished because of her past closeness with Putin. And I think commentators have been very surprised to see that that's reverted itself. Obviously, the outcome will matter a lot for what's happening in Ukraine right now. Le Pen has moderated her skepticism of the EU and NATO a bit, but still, it would be a substantial rupture in the way that France is conducting itself. And I think it would really shock what has been a pretty closely held alliance among the West so far. So I think the outcome does have pretty great repercussions for that. Yeah, it's certainly hard to imagine France continuing to send military aid to Ukraine under a Le Pen presidency, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the French people didn't always have a direct say in who became president. In a minute, we'll go back to find out how France got rid of its electoral college. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. Idris, what have you liked best from the most recent edition? As someone whose parents grew up in Pakistan, I've been following our coverage of Imran Khan's ouster. And it shows how much of a blessing it is to live in a country in which the army doesn't see itself as the primary political agent. Have you found the number of cricket analogies in those stories excessive or tolerable? I, I am not personally a fan of cricket, although my father is. And James Astle, our dear colleague, is a tremendous fan of cricket. So every time he tries to talk to me about it, I just tell him to go talk to my dad. Um, <laughs> I think, unfortunately, for him. Of course, The Economist isn't just written words. There's a really good intelligence special series on the French election, which also stars Sophie. She and Jason Palmer have been traveling all over France, talking to people from different political parties. You can catch up with the full series so far in our omnibus episode of the intelligence podcast which was published on april the 9th so if you just scroll back in your feed you'll find it there the citroen ds limousine was so sleek and smooth to drive that people took to calling it ds or the goddess and it soon became the favorite car of some of the most powerful people in france including the president himself, Charles de Gaulle. But on the evening of August 22, 1962, as the presidential driver accelerated along the Avenue de la Libération, the joy of the drive was shattered. Machine guns peppered the car with over 100 bullets, the attack was organized by ultra-right-wing opponents of the recent independence of Algeria. And it was immortalized a few years later in the opening scenes of the thriller, The Day of the Jackal. De Gaulle and his wife survived. They shoot like pigs, he said. But the event prompted the president to act to change French democracy forever. 
The hero of the Second World War had been brought out of retirement four years earlier, when the country seemed on the brink of falling apart. ends with mob action and the gravest threat to the French Republic since the war. Following a seven-hour general strike, a military junta seizes control in Algiers. The French colonists and army had staged a coup against Algerian independence. It undermined the remaining confidence in France's fragile Fourth Republic, which had already seen 20 administrations in its 12 short years. De Gaulle offered his services to his country once again. Encore une fois, directement à la France. To rewrite the constitution and then head up a strengthened presidency in a new Fifth Republic. Comme dans la précédente grande crise nationale, à la tête du gouvernement de la République française. To many, he was the only man who could save France from itself. To others, his assumption of power was one step away from military dictatorship and fascism. Though he quipped that, after a lifetime fighting for liberty, he hardly intended to become a dictator at the age of 67. De Gaulle was not a dictator, but he was imperial, grandiose, and arguably the most powerful man in Europe. He disdained political parties, which he thought wasted time and money on useless infighting. He wanted to go straight to the people. And he argued that the assassination attempt showed the vulnerability of the institution of the presidency. He proposed a radical new solution to create a presidency whose legitimacy could never be challenged. The abolition of France's electoral college. Le président de la République sera dorénavant élu au suffrage Instead, the president would be elected directly by universal suffrage. Rien n'est plus républicain. Nothing could be more republican, he said. Rien n'est plus démocratique. Nothing is more democratic. J'ajoute que rien n'est plus français. Indeed, nothing is more French. The parties hated the idea, but more than three quarters of French voters turned out for the referendum, and by two thirds, they voted yes. In the next election, in 1965, the candidates faced the popular vote for the first time. Between the two rounds, de Gaulle sat for his first ever television interview. The interviewer asked how he thought the politics of left and right would shape up in this new age of the Fifth Republic. France, de Gaulle replied, is everything at once. France is not the left, France is not the right. But, he admitted, the French people will continue to be carried by political tides. Of course, the part about the presidency being above politics turned out to be wrong. But Charles de Gaulle had strengthened the presidency, and this version of the French constitution has proved robust. The method of electing the president directly, so that the person who wins the most votes actually becomes president, gives the office a legitimacy that America's electoral college cannot match. And the two-round system protects France somewhat from shock results. If Marine Le Pen becomes the country's next president, it will be because a majority of French people want her to be president, not an accident. Charlotte, it took the French electorate a while to get there. They experimented with a bunch of different systems, but then since this national referendum, they've had directly elected presidents 
and the two-round system. I have to say, I greatly prefer this way of electing presidents to the American system. What about you? Yeah, I really agree. And I think it also points to something that's sort of counterintuitive, which is that we think of America as being more dynamic and open to change. But Americans in some ways are very conservative, particularly when they're thinking about their electoral system. And so I much prefer the French model. I'm with you. Idris, how about you? Do we have unanimity? Yeah, definitely. I think that if America were to actually change its electoral college approach, we wouldn't go into a prime ministerial system like the UK. I think we would go uh, into something like France where the president's directly elected, but there are separate parliamentary elections. And I do think that America has this, because it's only had one constitution, um, has this fond attachment to institutions that really no longer make much sense. Whereas if you're more used to continually reinventing a constitution, it's a little bit easier for you to to stomach the change. There are those differences on the presidential system, but there's also a difference when it comes to electing the lower house, which, again, I think is a place where France has it better than America. So, of course, in the House of Representatives, you have elections every two years. That means if you talk to any members of the House, you know, as soon as you've won your election, you start thinking about the next one because it's just around the corner. You spend an inordinate amount of time fundraising for your election campaigns. And then on a constitutional level, it means that more often than not, because of the way that voters tend to react against the party that holds the presidency in midterms, and we're going to see that, I think, later this year, more often than not, the same political party doesn't have control of the presidency and the House of Representatives. And that makes it extremely hard to get stuff done. Whereas in France, the Assemblée Nationale, which is the equivalent of the House of Representatives, has elections every five years, and it also has a two-round voting system. So again, that tends to create a system where it's slightly easier to get legislation through. The thing that I'm most struck by, actually, is the length of presidential campaigns. So Donald Trump announced his candidacy more than 500 days before the 2016 election. Obama did so more than 600 days. I mean, Macron admittedly was president when he did this, but he announced one day before the deadline. Le Pen, of course, said she would run back in 2020, but the actual campaign in earnest didn't get going until this year. And I think that there's a lot of merit to that. I mean, as a voter, you know, when do people actually tune in before an election in America? Gallup had some data that I was looking at from 2020 that showed that less than two months before that election, just 42% of the American electorate, so still a minority, said they were following politics very closely. And the truth is that the people who do pay attention a long time before the election are extreme partisans. And so it's yet another way that the American political system gives a lot of power to the people who are really far on the left or really far on the right. I wonder if by shortening the election, the result is actually that you get more normal people paying attention and having more influence over the course of the race. Yeah, I think you're probably right about that, Charlotte. I think it's certainly good for everyone's sanity. Idris, some Americans might look enviously or at least curiously at the way in which Emmanuel Macron was able to create an entire new political movement, push aside the two parties that had dominated French politics for a long time and launch a successful third party candidacy and not just a candidacy, but a whole political movement. Do you have a good structural explanation for why that sort of political innovation seems to be impossible in America? Uh, A lot of people have identified the first past the post system that America and the UK have, which basically means that you need to win the highest amount of, of votes in order to get the Electoral College or to win a district as the reason that both countries have basically devolved into two parties. And there isn't very much incentive 
to create a third party like Macron did because there is little chance of actually getting any of your representatives to the House and very, very little chance of getting uh, a third party candidate to win the presidency. Of course, even though France had that capacity for a long time, you still saw a center-left socialist and a center-right Republican party that you know were dominant for, for several decades. So there's obviously some attraction to the polarity, but we've seen that go away now. And it's very interesting that we now have, you know, a majority of voters who were going for either the anti-capitalist Mélenchon or Marine Le Pen in the first round. That's never happened before. But that, I think, shows that the old fissures that we had between, you know, traditional left and traditional right are being increasingly replaced by this worldview about immigration and nationalism. So maybe France is a little bit more receptive to it. Whereas in America, what you see is that all of that has to come out through the parties themselves. So the Trumpist faction takes over the Republican Party rather than forming its own Make America Great Again party. There's just one other structural aspect I wanted to underline before we leave this, which is that in France's presidential system, everybody votes on the same day. It's a Sunday, so most people are able to get to the polls. There's no early voting, by contrast with America, and voting by mail, which was such a source of debate in the 2020 presidential election, has been banned in France since 1975. People vote on paper, and those ballots are counted by hand, and the results seem to be totted up fairly quickly. So that's a sort of mixture of things that the left like and things that the right like in America. We'll be back in a moment to talk to the former French ambassador to Washington under both President Trump and President Obama about the tempestuous relationship between the two republics and which political system would win in a fight. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The last time we did an episode about France, it was because there was a diplomatic emergency last September, the AUKUS ruckus, when France decided to temporarily recall its ambassadors to the US and to Australia, which is an extremely unusual step for close allies. So I spoke to France's former ambassador to Washington, Gerard Arrow, and asked him whether relations have now been patched up. And just to flag, the first answer contains a swear word. So if you're listening with kids, you might want to skip ahead a minute. Well, yes, I think, I think patched up, we... You know, really, we were obliged, the French, to, to do it. You know, really, because the balance of power being uh, in favor of the U.S., we were obliged to accept the apologies. No, it's true that, really, President Biden was, I think, in my career, I never seen an American president so close to apologize to a foreign country, which was obviously a dysfunctionality of the American administration. You know, when I was the ambassador, I was telling my guys, don't underestimate the ability of the American administrations to fuck up. And basically, I have been in contact with the people on the, at the White House. Obviously, it's what they did. And it was not anti-French. The, the problem I had when I was ambassador under President Trump is the people I have access to, including the National Security Advisor, they don't have the slightest influence on the president. So it means that President Macron has to call Trump himself. 
You know, when I wanted to have an influence, I had to go to the family of the president. You know, it, it was like Louis XIV in the 17th century. So from outside, from the European point of view, and especially when you look at the Ukrainian crisis, I think the Biden administration has been very good at keeping a very strong and close relationship with the Europeans. Ambassador, looking at the polls at the moment, you could look at this election and look at the two-round presidential voting system in France and say it's rather a brilliant way of electing presidents. You know, people who feel excluded have a voice, but over the two rounds, you sort of avoid the possibility of one of those kind of fringe candidates becoming president almost by accident. Is it a better system for electing presidents than the American one? I, I don't know. You know, I'm going to make you a confession. I have some of my friends are leftists. And, and you know, they are telling me that they are a bit fed up. We call them in French the beaver because they are called on the second round to make a dam against the far right. And, uh, and you know, for the, I guess, the last three elections, the leftist voters have been called to be beavers. And they are fed up. And that could be actually the problem of Macron, and especially because Macron has shifted to the right during his mandate. And uh, so I think that our system is more reflecting the fact that in France we have several political parties, while in the US or in the UK you have only two big tents. But the political system in France is as sick as the American or the British one. Because when you look at the result of the first round, you see that we have only one centrist bloc, far right and far left. So the question is, if Macron is re-elected, you know, really, I'm not that optimistic because it doesn't solve the problem. He will have been elected by default. I want to ask about the plethora of parties in French politics now. I mean... French politics looks a lot more entrepreneurial to me than American politics. America still has the same duopoly that it's had since the early 20th century with power alternating between Democrats and Republicans. Why is that? And is that a sign of a sort of healthier politics or a less healthy politics, do you think? At the same time, your system is quite flexible, uh, really, because on the same tent, you can have, you know, Hillary Clinton and Bernie, and Bernie Sanders. And also these parties are moving. I think you really what is striking is the way the, the, the right has really very quickly changed its software. You know, they were for free trade. They are really to protectionism. They were for an active foreign policy. They, were, they went to isolationism. So I, I was asking the question, okay, you have a new right. Where, where is the new left? Where is the new left? And again, I'm going to sound suddenly very rightist by saying that wokeism is certainly not the answer to the problem of the men living in the Midwest, in the Rust Belt, which has been devastated by the, the last 40 years, or the man who is living in the north of France in the industrial Rust Belt. So it's basically my question is more to the, to the left saying, why don't you respond to the concerns of these people? These people are not fascist. These people are simply trying to express the fact that they feel excluded, they feel marginalized by the system. And Ambassador, Democrats looking forward to the midterms are worrying already that 
President Biden hasn't been able to get as much done as they'd hoped domestically. When you were ambassador in the Obama administration, Democrats were also worried that the president was rather weak domestically. Plenty of Republicans thought when Donald Trump was president that he didn't get enough done domestically. In terms of the powers of the political offices, is the American presidency stronger or is it weaker than the French presidency? You know, I think you, you, you can argue both ways. For instance, as you know, the American president can't spend a dollar without uh, the approval, the decision of the Congress. I think at the end of the day, I should say that the French president has more power. And you may argue that that's one of the problems of our political system, because basically we have this election of president and the parliament in row, which means that the president is nearly assured of having his majority. And the consequence is that the parliament basically doesn't matter, which could be acceptable 50 years ago. But in our societies, which are more complicated, where there are really a lot of different tensions, it means also that all the trends in societies are not reflected. Personally, I do think that we should reform our institutions in this respect and give less power to our president. Charlotte, one takeaway from that, I suppose you could say that everybody seems to dislike their own political system in a different way. I agree. I think it was helpful for him to pour cold water on our admiration. (laughs) It's like the Tolstoy line from Anna Karenina, which no doubt you both know, but happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. (laughs) What is it in Russian? Um, I know the Russian by heart. Let me begin. (laughs) It's excellent. Yeah, bravo. No, that, that is actually the line. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was good. Okay. If you look at the numbers, it, it is pretty striking from the past presidential election just how anemic some of the moderates seem and, and the strength of the far left and far right. The far left party in the first round gained four percentage points. The far right gained six percentage points. The more center left is zero, more center right, negative 16. I mean, it's really, really striking. So you see Macron trying to kind of hold together the middle, but with much more of the power shifting further to the extremities. Idris, how far should we push the analogy here with America? I mean, I change my mind from time to time about whether the center is collapsing in America and whether you know all the energy is at the extremes or whether actually the extremes in American politics are kind of overrepresented when it comes to the political discourse, at least. And, and in reality, the center is a lot bigger than it usually seems, certainly if you watch cable news or spend your time on Twitter. What, what do you think? Is, is the center collapsing in America? Look, I, I think that given how much we know about how polarization has increased both among voters and among policy positions, I think it's inarguable to say that the center in America is much smaller than it's been before. As the ambassador noted, the Republican Party uh, has been pretty much wholesale taken over, and the kinds of ideas that we might have thought of as centrist within that party are now quite a minority. Within the Democratic Party, there is a more protracted struggle over the identity of of the party between the progressive wings and the moderate wings. And I think that the story of the 2020 presidential Democratic primary, where we were arguing between 
whether or not Beto O'Rourke's trillion dollars of climate spending was too little and whether or not we preferred Medicare for all or a public option demonstrated that the progressive faction was really in the ascendancy. I think that circumstances have changed that and there's been a, a bit of a blow towards the moderates. But I think on the whole, the center in America is in a much weaker position than it's been for decades. So I have a thing on this, which is a subject of total fascination, and Prudhoe's going to roll his eyes. But so in the UK, there's apparently this caricature, which I've become aware of in the past month, called a centrist mom or a centrist dad. And when I raise this as a term of fascination to John Prudhoe, he looks at me like I'm asking him to explain what LOL means. But I find it fascinating because in America, it's just not a thing. You know, the idea of sort of the centrist as someone you could make fun of is just it, it, it wouldn't occur to anyone because it's like making fun of a ghost. It's just not there. And I think in part that may be because, among the left at least, because anti-Trump sentiment for moderates, it kind of sucked the oxygen from the political middle and that during the Trump years, everybody who was on the left, you were just against Trump. You weren't kind of a centrist person in, within the Democratic Party. You were just kind of anti-Trump is my view of this. But I think that also another thing that's happened, and you see this in Macron's campaign, is the wonky stuff is just less interesting. It's boring. People who are really pragmatic, you saw this with Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. It's just not where people want to spend, voters want to spend a lot of time thinking. And you see the way, as Dries pointed out, these really giant ideas captured the popular imagination in the 2020 campaign that were pretty far to the left, almost romantic in their scope. And the idea of having kind of a pragmatist who likes to think about the way that market forces might contribute to the fight against climate change. I mean, this is just all stuff that I think generally has been left out of the popular discourse in America in particular in a way that there's still vestiges of it, at least in Britain and France. I think you're spot on. I'm very attached to this notion, so much so that I play in a band with some friends and our WhatsApp group for the band the name is the Centrist Dad Collective. So I'm all in on this idea. Centrist dads generally like listening to music like The National. Uh, their politics is sort of radically reasonable and they like people like Emmanuel Macron and Tony Blair and Ursula von der Leyen. I'm kind of really disappointed to hear that you're in a competing band, Chicken of Tomorrow. I take this as a personal point of betrayal. It's not a betrayal yet, because given that Chicken of Tomorrow is yet to either perform or rehearse. But Just in that, our imaginations. A tough decision, yeah. maybe, maybe coming down the track. I, I got made fun of for playing the national at a party <laughs> by my friends who said that it was too dour, although the song was called Nobody Else Will Be There, so I guess that's a fair point. It's a good one, though. That is an excellent tune. But I'd agree with you, Charlotte. I think centrist mums and dads do seem to be a bit of an endangered species in American political discourse. The centre-right in America has been under heavy fire from its own side. And if you're on the centre-left, any attempt to pursue a more moderate position often results in being accused of kind of selling out or doing Trump's work for him. So, yeah, I, I do agree with you on that score. As a keen observer of the woke style of American politics, it is interesting to hear the French complain about it. Macron has done the same as well because they think that uh, American universities are exporting dangerous ideas to France that are dividing them. And the irony, of course, is that these ideas were exported to America by French thinkers like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, and then re-imported. So as far as you know, cultural exchange that's been going on for 50 or 60 years, uh, it's a pretty important one. I think it's appropriate that we should wrap up this podcast with a discussion of irony and French postmodernism. But before <laughs> I let the two of you go, I have a quiz. The long relationship between America and France 
has been far from smooth. In March 1966, The Economist wrote about a bomb at the heart of NATO as Charles de Gaulle announced he was withdrawing France from NATO's integrated military command in protest at American dominance. France, of course, rejoined under President Sarkozy in 2009. Question one. There are now 30 members of NATO. Which one has no standing army? Uh, uh... I think uh, I think Luxembourg because they have ten people, so they can't have more than one fighter jet, right? Right. It's like we're devoting fifty percent of our GDP to the military, and we give you these two people. <laughs> that is a very logical guess. The answer, though, is Iceland. Though the question should maybe be, why is Iceland in NATO when it doesn't have an army? It has a coast guard, however, and a small sort of SWAT team of special forces, and it lets NATO use the country as a sort of training ground. Okay. Question two. No easier, I'm afraid. The idea of Americans pouring French wine down the gutter every time there's a falling out between the two countries has gained a sort of vogue. But forget about French wine. Ohio has a long tradition of growing fine wine from the native Catawba grape. Which American poet immortalized the quality of Catawba wine in an ode in 1857? I would guess Longfellow, because he was into odes and was around at the time. Or it could be Whitman. That's a really good question. And one, as someone who wrote a lot about poetry in college, an answer that I should know. You wrote a lot about English poetry, right? So that, that wouldn't help you any. It was, Idris gets a point, it was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. So congratulations. He wrote, Pure as a spring is the wine I sing. And to praise it, one needs but name it. For Catawba wine has no need of sign, no tavern bush to proclaim it. There you go. It has a lot of verses and goes on and on, but that's the that's really the key passage. Well, Idris, you're, you're a narrow winner this week. Congratulations and good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Thank you. Charlotte, your contribution to this podcast is never measured by your <laughs> score in the quiz. Thank you again for being here. Um, well, you're lucky to have me. You're welcome. <laughs> if this has only whetted your appetite for American politics and foreign policy, then please go and listen to our sister podcast, The Economist Asks, with Senator Bob Menendez, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He talks to Anne McElvoy about how the war in Ukraine is testing US foreign policy. That's The Economist Asks, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Amika Shortino-Nolan and Stevie Hertz and mixed by Saul Rivers, with research by Erica Shin, Milton Vargas and Elizabeth Peet. If you like the show, then please do give us a rating or a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.